Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Well, hello again, and I hope you're all well. And how about this? Soaring costs, inflated bills, high-priced procedures, and a system that is eating up Americans' hard-earned taxpayer dollars at an alarming rate. That's the sad state of America's healthcare system today. Despite reforms and Obamacare, the American healthcare system is still broken. Dr. Tony Dale, a leading healthcare policy expert, author of The Cure for Healthcare, is here to tell us about how the system can be fixed. Uh, you know, the national healthcare bill is now approaching $4 trillion. That's almost 20% of the nation's uh, gross national product. The system itself has become corrupt. I mean, did you know that an MRI uh, here in Austin, let's just use this as a typical example. If I go to green imaging, I think it'll cost me $325 for an MRI. If I go to our local hospital, it'll cost me $2,500 to $3,500. That's 10 times more. So there's a system emerging. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Jelly Jelly adjective Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services AdoptUSKids and the Ad Council my guest is Dr. Tony Dale, author of The Cure for Healthcare. He is a British physician here in America and a leading healthcare policy expert, talking to me about how we can fix our broken healthcare system. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Dr. Dale, uh, welcome to my show. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to be here. We have a lot to talk about. It's a pretty heavy-duty subject, uh, the cost of healthcare, the cure for healthcare, the name of your new book. What is actually going on? Because here in the United States, as many people will be familiar with, it's really expensive. It's complicated. Bills are all over the map. And a lot of people really don't have a handle on it, including the experts. What's your prognosis for the American healthcare system. It's very expensive. How can we get the costs down? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, and maybe to put this in context for your listeners, uh, my background is British. Uh, you know, I had my medical training in, in London at the Royal and Ancient Hospital of St. Bartholomew's, uh, established 1123, kind of different from uh, how Americans view history classically. Uh, and so, uh, I've experienced uh, what it's like under a single payer system, and I've also ha had my own experience of what it's like here. Uh, actually, my own interest in what was going on here uh, happened literally by accident. The accident was to me. Uh, I injured my knee. This was back in 1996. And the uh, surgeon told me it was going to cost about $2,000 to put right. Now, I hadn't come over here to practice medicine, so I wasn't working in the system. I did not know exactly what that meant, but I assumed it would be around $2,000. Well, the surgery went great, but $15,000 of medical bills later, uh, which in today's terms would be $35,000 for really a very simple procedure, a repair of a medial meniscus, maybe 20 minutes in the operating room. Uh, where $35,000 in today's terms been spent in 20 minutes in an operating room when I went in at 6.30 in the morning and they were sending me home at 10.30 that same morning? Uh, and I began to explore and, of course, uh, realized immediately that he had only been describing his own cost. Uh, but even that, when I spoke to him, if you if you looked at the sort of hour cost, that meant he was paying himself four million a year. Uh, if he spent 20 million, uh, you know, 20 uh, minutes with me and was charging me two thousand dollars for that. So, you know, I began looking and digging uh, and immediately discovered uh, the problems. 
So you asked me, well, what is my prognosis? You know, if you're going to give a prognosis as a physician, you have to understand what the illness is to start with. Uh, there's a very good book written by a professor, Marty McCary of John Hopkins, called The Price We Pay, uh, which is an incredible look at peeling off the layers of the onion of what has gone wrong with the medical system here. Uh, and uh, he described, you know, all sorts of things that we may or may not have time to go into. But, you know, one of them is that uh, a system, particularly at the hospital side, that began very much in the nonprofit sector, you know, most of the hospitals in this country, even to this day, have a charitable sort of foundation behind them. And yet it's the nonprofits, even more than the for-profits, which are now at the forefront of the sort of corruption, which is a part of the whole medical system. So the reason I wrote The Cure for Healthcare was I wanted to say to people, we're beginning to understand the problem. Let's now look and see where the answers are. We can get to some of those answers in a moment. You presented uh, your findings at a free market medical conference back in August. I'm curious to get uh, what the reaction to all of that was. But you you mentioned something there, the non-profit corruption that has seeped in. I suppose a lot of people don't recognize or understand the historical legacy of charities in terms of the provision of the modern hospital system. So if we go back a century, two centuries, a lot of what were then hospitals were essentially charitable institutions run by the Quakers, Catholic nuns, the church. I suppose on a a free basis, you just walked in and you got whatever they could offer you. Arguably, medicine back then was primitive compared to today. So we've evolved from that. But now, of course, there's a certain amount of corruption. That that history is interesting. Could you just maybe briefly talk about it and then talk about the findings that you presented at the conference? Let, let's think about the charitable structure that most hospitals, you know, were started on in their early days. And of course, not just hospitals, but uh, many of the institutions of higher education uh, the, the same way. It was very natural if you go back 100 or 200 years uh, for the church of, uh, you know, sort of any and every denomination to be very involved in uh, these social enterprises, which were designed to really lift up and improve uh, the, the life of their members and of the general population. It was part of the church actually reaching out. You could view it as a part of the church's evangelism, Mm -hmm. uh, that just as Christ, you know, took care uh, of the poor and of the needy and of the sick, uh, so his church would do a similar thing. And that's why in virtually every city, you know, you have hospitals, you know, here in Austin, you have Seton Medical System, part of Ascension, a very, very large Catholic system, or, you know, move across over to Houston and you have Methodist or Baptist or, you know, people are very used to the idea that there was a religious backing. Uh, Now, whether those entities were literally free or whether they charged their uh, patients or at least something, I'm sure there was some sort of sliding scale. Uh, I myself grew up in a missionary uh, child context. My father was a physician, uh, initially in a hospital and then running a family practice unit out in Taiwan. So I watched all of this and, uh, you know, had experience from my earliest memories of what it looks like to both take care of the poor and of the rich. Uh, and to see a physician who really made no difference between the two and willingly took care of both, uh, willingly gave his time and willingly charged for his time in whichever way was appropriate. Those uh, non-profits, yeah, I assume there was some kind of a a payment uh, for services, but I would assume they were very low cost compared to today because in a sense, there were missionaries and volunteers who were getting no or very small salaries. Well, if you look at something as famous as the Mayo Clinic, of course, it started in precisely that manner. Uh, My understanding, I'm not an expert on on its history or any other medical history for that matter, but uh, my understanding that uh, it was Catholic nuns who uh, really provided the backbone of care at the Mayo Clinic. And yet now it's grown into sort of a multi, multi multi-billion dollar enterprise Uh, that represents absolutely some of the finest medical care in the world, uh, but also uh, represents extremely high costs. Uh, And these are where you have to begin to look at what's going on. 
Now, there are certain things you can justify, you know, research institutions like Mayo or Cleveland Clinic or whatever. Uh, you know, they obviously have high costs, uh, but a lot of these costs are actually underwritten by the government. Uh, so that most uh, of that primary research is funded through the, you know, National Institutes of Health or, you know, other entities. Uh, and so we then have to ask, well, most of these hospitals still have charitable status. They're getting massive tax advantages because of their charitable status. But are they giving back to the community? I spoke to one of our local, uh, you know, nonprofit hospitals here. Uh, this is going back a number of years, so these figures would probably be significantly larger now. Uh, but they talked about the fact that they were writing off $17 million uh, in medical expenses a month. Oh what they gosh. didn't describe was how much they were taking in every month and whether there was any parallel. You know, it sounds like, oh, we're being so generous if we're writing off $17 million. But if that $17 million is defined by what I call the, the hospital rack rate, that rate that you see on the back of a hotel door, which nobody's ever paid for staying in that hotel. Uh, if you define things in those terms and then say we're writing off 17 million and maybe there was only 5 million of real costs in there to start with, you're dramatically exaggerating. Uh, and so you have stories in Professor McCary's book of nonprofit, you know, charitable, uh, denominational based hospitals uh, that are actually suing their own staff for medical bills that are grossly inflated, way beyond what's reasonable for the procedure. And they're suing their own staff because they're not paying what was a grossly overinflated bill to start with. These are things that I think for those who come from uh, some sort of a biblical background, shall we say, particularly, you know, those of us from our Catholic or Protestant backgrounds who uh, really have respect for, for, for the words of, uh, of Scripture, uh, where it says we not only don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, instead we even expose them. And I think we need to expose what's going on and bring things back to an honest, transparent system. We know medical costs in the United States are exceedingly high, maybe among the highest in the developed world. The cost of prescription medicine is extremely high. I saw a recent study ranking countries in the developed world which had the top 10 countries spending the most money on medication. The United States was number one at over 1,200 per year, followed by Switzerland, Germany, Canada and then went down to Korea number 10. This was on medications, pharmaceutical. I mean, of course, you could drill down those numbers and say, well, maybe Americans are spending more because they're taking better care. But either way, it's top of that list. And in terms of just medical costs, what, what the typical American that pays full freight, how do their costs compare with the other countries? in the developed world. Yeah, no, in overall spending, the per capita spending here in the United States is a little over $10,000. Okay, so, per so, capita. So is that made up of the insurance premiums or out of pocket or what, what uh, is that? Add, add all of that together. If you look at what's being spent, uh, you know, the national healthcare bill is now approaching $4 trillion. That's almost 20% of the nation's uh, gross national product. Uh, so, Say that a number again, doctor. It's worth repeating. Uh, okay. Uh, it's approaching $4 trillion, Wow. Which has 20%. Uh, people need to understand this. Of all the money that changes hands between everybody in the United States, for every transaction of every type, $1 in five is being exchanged in the national uh, expenditure on healthcare. Now, that's double... Uh, what countries like Britain or France or Switzerland or Germany are experiencing. Uh, well, yes, on a per capita, but even when you look nationally at, at the gross expenditure, uh, whereas, you know, we're spending uh, around 10,000 per capita, they're spending more like uh, 5,000, maybe got, a little okay. bit less per capita. And obviously they, they work in, you know, uh, they don't work in American dollars, but that equalizes everything based on exchange rates. Uh, so. They're getting something which is providing, let me describe it as at least adequate, and in many cases, quite good. Okay, now, is it the best care? You know, this is where people begin arguing, and you have to discover what people mean. Um, 
I, I personally think that if you look around the world, pretty much anywhere, if people have something really serious and they had an opportunity to come to a place like Cleveland Clinic or Mayo, they would willingly take that opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, America does have available extraordinary, uh, incredible high-class medical care for those who have access to it. In contrast, for those who don't have access, uh, they actually have really poor care on national statistics, uh, compared perhaps to the United Kingdom, where I come from, uh, where the average person is not going to be worried about healthcare costs because it's all taken care of through their taxes, meaning they don't see it. They don't realize how much is being taken. So that's the, the national health system you're talking about in the UK. That is correct. The NHS, for which you right. know Britain is very proud of the NHS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what they don't talk about is the long waiting list. The fact that you might be waiting months for an MRI or years for the surgery that was going to come out of the MRI. Uh, so, you know, the way that the, the countries with socialized systems have, as it were, restricted access is they restrict it over time. They make you wait. I remember when I took my uh, uh, my own mother, she uh, was here after my father had passed. You know, we were mainly looking after her. Uh, she had had some back pain, which I thought was probably a collapsed vertebrae. We took her in to have an, uh, you know, an examination by a specialist. Uh, and he confirmed that he thought that's what was happening. And he said to me, you know, would it be best if, if your mother had an MRI here in our building uh, later today? Uh, or would it be more convenient for her if we arranged it at a unit uh, somewhere down in South Austin, uh, near where she lives for tomorrow? That's inconceivable in the British system. Yeah. Uh, the availability, the access for those who can afford the access is second to none here. Okay, but it, the flip side of the coin is uh, that we certainly have not taken care of our poor. Uh, and in the same way, we've allowed the system to gain control. So, you know, when the government tries to do something like Medicare or Medicaid, does it do the best possible job? Well, that's very open to question. I, I think many of us think uh, a private system, uh, maybe with some government oversight, would be uh, way more efficient that when things get so super huge, they inevitably not only become bureaucratic, but people find ways to play the system. Uh, and so we, we now have the ridiculous situation that we've already discussed here of hospital systems grossly overcharging uh, and everybody except the patient loving that system because for the hospitals, there's lots of, you know, profit or, you know, if they're non-profit hospitals, there's all sorts of other things they can do with the money. Uh, or, you know, if it's insurance companies, they love high premiums because they're guaranteed by the government that, uh, you know, uh, that they're allowed a certain amount of profit. So we have to peel back the layers of this onion and say we need to bring back the free market with pricing transparency along with real easy access to quality metrics on what's going on so that we can make the same buying decisions in healthcare we would whether we were buying a TV or if we were buying a new home. You mentioned taking care of the poor in healthcare. Isn't, wasn't that what Obamacare was designed to do, the uninsured and those who were disadvantaged offer them a, a low-cost access to healthcare? That's ostensibly what it was designed to do. Uh, but I think any of us who were already heavily involved in the system could see in the basic structure that when what you do is you bring together government in a quasi-monopolistic relationship with a handful of very large uh, insurance entities, and you guarantee their profits on the back of the taxpayer. You set up a system where you say, well, uh, they're only allowed 20% or maybe it's 15% when they're dealing with larger companies uh, of the money that they receive as premium that has to be shown that uh, the other 80% or 85%, whichever the case may be, has to be demonstrated that it goes directly towards healthcare. Okay, now that sounds like you're keeping the cost down. No, 
That's doing exactly the opposite. Because now you've said to them, if you want to make more money, what you have to do is find ways to keep raising the premium cost. Because if you're limited there in that 20%, there's no incentive to keep costs down. You actually- Others pick up the tab, you're saying. Of course. Once you have other people, whether it's insurance companies or the government, what happens is healthcare spending becomes a black hole that will eat up everything people are willing to throw at it. Fair enough. How do we take care of the poor then? Okay, well, I I, I don't think there's one simple answer to that, but I think there are a number of things. So, for example, how did we take care of the poor 100 years ago? Uh, Okay, we may not have done it very adequately. It may not have been perfect, but yes, it was charitable. Uh, And whether it was private institutions, uh, such as the churches, uh, who were stepping in, or whether it was privately owned hospitals and physicians who own their own practices, but who were giving their time. Uh, what happens is that charitable, I'm trying to think how to describe this. America has always been a nation with an unbelievably large heart. Mm. You know, whether it's after World War II rebuilding Europe or, or whether it's taking care of its poor, it's willing to do so. Okay, but as government takes on more and more responsibility for these things, that cancels out the impact of people saying, but actually I should be taking responsibility within my own community. I should be noticing what's happening. I should, you know, have food, which, you know, my my kids and their kids, my grandkids love to be able to take something in the car all the time so that if there's a homeless person, they can give them a meal. Okay, when we have government doing everything for people, we lose that sense of personal responsibility as a society. Now, is it appropriate in a country as wealthy as the United States for government to get engaged? Almost certainly it is. Uh, But let's find ways that involve the populace instead of shunting them to one side and not having government so big that you then have this complete destruction of the free market where people understand the value exchange that is part of what keeps both the quality up and the cost down in every other sphere of economics. So maybe a hybrid approach, free market and uh, government intervention where appropriate? Uh, I, I personally could certainly live with something like that. I think we want to actively encourage every type of charitable uh, framework uh, that the population want to do. But should there be a safety net beyond that? For example, let, let's take here in the medical realm the issue of pre-existing conditions. It, it's totally appropriate that the government in a wealthy country would establish a safety net so that those who, for whatever reason, find themselves completely uninsured and facing a major disastrous incident have help that they need. But it's also appropriate that the government hold people accountable. So if you went to a country like Switzerland, you also have to have insurance and you'll be fined if you don't, meaning you're going to be held accountable. Uh, And so what they're saying is, Take personal responsibility first. But hey, you know, I've seen situations where people are between jobs. It was perhaps no fault of their own. They were offered COBRA, but COBRA is incredibly expensive by most people's point of view, because all of a sudden they see what the employer was paying as well. Uh, And so someone who might have been paying, let's call it $500 for themselves or their family is now asked to pay, you know, $2,000. They can't afford it. Uh, And in that context, Uh, Of course, we should have safety nets that take care of people. Uh, There are some people, I mean, Jesus himself said, the poor you're always going to have with you. Some people, for whatever reasons, don't ever get out of whatever it is has trapped them in poverty. Of course, we should have some minimum standard of how we look after them. But to now sort of define that, you know, the subsidies that are out there under the Affordable Care Act now are, are looking after some of the wealthiest people in the world. That doesn't make sense. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Tony Dale, author of The Cure for Healthcare, 
He is a British physician in America and a leading healthcare policy expert here talking about fixing our broken healthcare system. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The cost of healthcare in the United States is soaring. That is correct. That is correct. And the number you referenced earlier, the trillions we're spending each year, that's the taxpayer. Does that include the money taxpayers are putting into Yes, uh, that includes includes everything. So about 50%, roughly speaking, about 50% of all healthcare costs in this country are handled through the government, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, military, you know, whatever it might be. But that's an aggregate number of the cost of healthcare in the United States. Correct. Nothing reining it in. Now, we could take individual cases like your own many years ago, but I've heard cases of People who've gotten sick with serious illness getting billed as much as 100,000, 150, been totally, essentially being driven into bankruptcy. Okay, now the, you've raised a very, very interesting issue here uh, because if you study medical bankruptcy, of which there is a lot in this country, okay, something like if you take just those people who have a medical component to their bankruptcy. That represents about 50% of bankruptcies in this country, where a medical issue is the, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back and tipped them into bankruptcy. Okay, if you take that 50% who have a medical component, 85% of those people had major medical insurance coverage. So in spite of having insurance coverage, they were driven into bankruptcy. Okay, the idea that insurance is the best or only way to handle these issues is a complete misunderstanding of the problem. In fact, the Affordable Care Act has made the situation, I would say, significantly worse because what we now have is a nation. Yeah, there are more people who have some type of insurance, but we have a nation of people who are functionally uninsured because when the average person has maybe an individual deductible of four or $5,000, a family deductible of $15,000, when there's only one person in five in the country who has $1,000 of disposable income sitting in a savings account somewhere, Okay, what we've done is we're crippling the employer and the employee with their premium costs. And on top of that, 19 out of 20 employees will not have a medical incident in any given year that reaches their deductible. And so they still have to take care of the broken ankle or the broken arm in their kid or the ear infection or, you know, the gastric flu or whatever it might be. So their insurance is not serving them on the small stuff. It's there for the big stuff, which doesn't happen to 19 out of 20 people, but they're having to pay these exorbitant rates. And we have to figure out what to do about that. Premiums are rising for middle-class Americans, the super rich. Maybe that's not an issue, cost of healthcare, they're you know, billionaires or whatever, but maybe it is. And then, of course, those who are uninsured get coverage, which is subsidized by taxpayers. What are some of the three or four top cost centers in healthcare in America? Because you, in one paper, mentioned professional salaries, what doctors and nurses and medical professionals get in America versus what they might get in Europe. I guess my response to that is, aren't they worth it? A lot of those professionals are heavily in debt by the time they become a practicing nurse or a practicing doctor. It's not unusual to hear of a doctor coming out of med school with student debt of 200 and 250,000. If they're not getting good salaries, gosh, they're bankrupt. John, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, And uh, I was very careful not to say that doctors or nurses are the ones who are uh, gaming the system, if I can put it that way. Uh, Actually, the vast majority of doctors and surgeons are, are paid, should we say, reasonably well, Uh, but they're not in the the ranks of the super wealthy. If you look, the fascinating thing is over the last 30 years, the growth is in the administrative class. Okay, it's in the the, the presidents and vice presidents and associate vice presidents and, you know, regional managers or whatever it is, whether it's in the insurance systems or in the hospital systems. If you look at, say, a typical doctor who might be a doctor in an ER, Uh, So, you know, an emergency room physician. Did you know that most emergency room physicians now don't work for the hospital and they don't work for themselves? 
They work for private equity groups. They work for Wall Street in, in a sense. Essentially. Uh, and the big hospital systems, it's the same thing. Uh, so, no, I definitely am not pointing the finger at the physicians or, uh, or, or the nurses. I bless them for their commitment to their work and their incredible, uh, you know, hard work to prepare and to train. I have a son who's right now in his fifth year of residency. You know, he's been on this journey for 14 years. Yeah, it's extraordinary uh, preparing dedication. Himself. Uh, so, you know, these are incredible things that people people do. Uh, but the system itself has become corrupt. Uh, and we have to look at, you know, I, I, I think of, you know, in the book, I give various examples of this, but I, I think of Dr. Keith Smith, uh, the anesthetist who is behind the surgery center of Oklahoma, which has pioneered in an incredible way what price transparency looks like in the surgical and anesthetic world. Uh, and the surgeries that are done there at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, they cost about one third uh, of what the same surgery costs in other local hospitals or other hospitals around the country. Wow. They cost one third and the surgeon gets paid more than he would for doing that same surgery at one of the expensive hospitals where it costs three times as much. Wow. Now, it's a waiting Keith list. Smith, oh, it, it's wrong. And, and Keith Smith said to me that part of what forced him down this path as he looked at what was happening to patients was he had realized that he was becoming like a financial serial killer. He was <laughs> helping people in their health care, but they were all being left with debt. And he wanted to do something about it that he could he could. And he's had a profound impact on surgery and anesthetics all over the nation. Amazing. The other things that come to mind are advances in technology. I'm told, and I know people who are in the industry moving a lot of these big machines, these latest gizmo for some uh, cure. It's brought into the hospital and it's used once or twice, and then it's redundant and it costs a million dollars. That is a big cost factor. We've new medicines. Uh, people are living longer. So there's a lot of things that are pushing costs up that are variables and probably hard to control, but maybe with free market principles, they can be curbed or crimped a little bit? Uh, I think the answer is absolutely yes, because when you let the free market come to play, then people begin making their own choices. So, you know, one of my, I don't know, I guess, pet peeves is knowing how much money, for example, and different people could, you know, if they're making their own choice, that, that's up to them. Uh, but in a situation where we, we've just sort of accepted this as a country, uh, something like 50%, now I, I may have the figure wrong, but a, a massive amount of money is typically spent in the last six months of a person's uh, care. Uh, so, you know, to, to keep granny alive for another six months, I may be adding millions and millions and millions of dollars with no quality of life for granny. Okay, what, what we see in all sorts, of, you know, there'll be some people who might hate me for making a remark like that. You know, uh, I've been very blessed to be able to look after my own parents, you know, as they were, uh, you know, preparing uh, for what's going to happen to all of us. Uh, but we can't forever put off the inevitable. We have to face what are issues of personal responsibility. Now, it doesn't just apply at the end of life. You know, uh, when, when I make a choice, uh, and for most people it's a choice, perhaps for some people it's not something they can control, and that's a separate issue, and we then need to deal with it. But if, if I make a choice that I'm not going to bother with exercise and I'm going to habitually overeat, that's going to have problems. Okay, now, if I'm willing to carry the responsibility for those choices, including the financial responsibility, then that's fair enough. Uh, but if I'm not willing to carry responsibility, if I'm not willing to move towards health, but I'm choosing a path that I know moves me towards sickness, I should also carry some of the responsibility of those choices. So these are where to transform the situation. We have to have a holistic approach, uh, something like two-thirds of American adults over the age of 45 are already on two chronic medications that they'll probably be on for the rest of their lives. Okay, we don't have to live like that. Mm -hmm. we, we can choose to move towards health. And that on its own will have a massive impact on the overall nation's health cost.
You mentioned end-of-life care. Uh, that's controversial. It's worthy of a, a separate episode, but some people would take exception perhaps to what you said they said well extend life as long as you can it it seems to me that if we're not very careful about this and compassionate we're on a slippery slope how we handle that i think that's a perfectly reasonable comment john uh and uh i'm absolutely pro-life uh from conception uh to the time when the lord takes us uh so i wouldn't want that misunderstood Uh, What I'm talking about, though, uh, is really uh, what I would describe as the modern pathological fear of death, as if it's not inevitable. Yes. Uh, And we see that during COVID even almost. Of course. Some of these experts are dealing with it. There's this incredible obsession about a lot of topics which they just can't grapple with. You know, I found that right from my earliest medical training. I remember my first post uh, you know, uh, MD job uh, in England. We actually get an MBBS rather than an MD. It's a different language. But uh, my my first job as a qualified doctor, uh, and I said to to the physician I was working with, the, the the consultant is what we would call them. You know, meaning he's finished all of his training. He's he's the boss. Uh, I, I said, you're you're not helping these patients face death. Oh, and he said, oh no, I don't like talking about that. But he said, if you if you're interested in that, you're welcome to do it. So I did. For that six months I was working with him, I made sure that any of our patients who were moving towards death, that we were helping them face that. Uh, And that's part of what I mean, that we have to learn how to deal responsibly with difficult topics and anything to do with death, anything to do with chronic illness. You know, these, these are difficult topics and we have to grapple with them if we're going to be serious about dealing with overall medical expenses. Yeah. Uh, There's a couple of things that occur to me also about the system in the United States, the billing, which you refer to, and all that big administration, how big it's getting. But a a lot of patients who have insurance, which you need, obviously, unless you're uninsured and you get Obamacare, uh, will complain about the confusion that accompanies all those invoices. In other words, you could be sent the initial invoice, but it's not actually the invoice. It's just the preliminary one. And if you're foolish enough, you just pay that sticker price. I mean, why can't that be streamlined? Why is it so confusing? Why is there so many errors made by the insurance companies? The wrong codes go out. And and those who are timid don't even protest. Well, John, I, I think you've described very clearly the why. What incentive is there for someone who's profiting from that complete lack of transparency and the confusion and the complexity, why would they want to simplify it? Uh, that That's a great profit center. Uh, could it be simplified? Of course it could. You know, if you want to buy a car, it, it's not that complicated, but that's expensive. You know, there are people out there who buy airlines uh, or whatever. You know, again, you, you can have transparency if you want it. Uh, But the medical system basically does not want that transparency. And, you know, I'd I'd love to, I guess, in a friendly way, challenge, you know, something you just said. You said, I guess everybody does need insurance. Well, that's one way of dealing with things. But actually, there are some other models. Uh, So, you know, uh, exempted within the Affordable Care Act are the Christian Healthcare Sharing Ministries. Uh, they now have about one and a half million people that they're looking after remarkably well. In the in United highly, States. Yeah, in the United States, in a highly organized sharing model, groups like MediShare or Samaritan Ministries. Uh, I myself, having done a lot of work with those Christian ministries over the years, uh, started a company in 2014 called Sidera. Uh, and Sidera has taken this medical cost sharing model out into the mainstream. Uh, we work with groups all over the country. Uh, uh, along with individuals, teaching them how in a highly organized way you can organize uh, and have your bills paid for uh, within a community of people who voluntarily, not by a contractual relationship where I give my risk to the insurance company and in exchange for, uh, for that, I have to pay my premium, but on a voluntary basis where we all choose Uh, that we're going to voluntarily engage with each other's medical costs in a transparent fashion. 
Uh, and we've found that we can look after the tens of thousands of people that we look after at about half the cost of the insurance system. Uh, so there are other approaches. We just kind of like to, a co-op. Uh, I think that's a, a great description. I Let's just look at that because this is really important because I really wanted to understand fully your model of free market healthcare, which is what you're promoting here. That seems to be, in a nutshell, what it's about. Well, there are two, two pillars, I would say, to this. The first is you have to learn how you can help people in the inexpensive part of the system rather than constantly going to the expensive part. Let's call it hospital-based medicine. Okay, the way you do that, classically and right now, is that you make sure there's a very strong doctor-patient relationship between every given individual and their family doctor, their primary care doctor. There is a rapidly multiplying movement known as direct primary care, where on a membership basis, actually for less than the cup of a, a, a cup of Starbucks coffee each day on your way to work, for less than that, for half that, maybe $75 a month, you can have this relationship with a family doctor who's chosen to only look after maybe five or 600 people that he can look after really well based on that membership fee, rather than trying to look after two and a half or 3,000 and doing the job poorly. Mm. So if you take care of people in a strong primary care relationship, that will take care of 80% of most people's medical needs. That's the first pillar of your idea. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is- $75 a month. About $75 a month. Per, Per family or per individual? Per individual. For a family, probably $150 a month. Okay. okay that's they, gonna... they do all that your uh, a checkup regularly or once a year. Absolutely. Or a you get all who, that. Who's involved with you, not just when you're sick, but who is teaching you how to be well. That's a true health system. And Dr. Okay. Day, let me just drill down a little bit more because it's a key point here. Would there be inpatient or would it be virtual or a combination? I can be. In either. other words, I mean, office visits, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you have direct primary care. You have many who are doing uh, virtual primary care. We've all seen through this sort of COVID era that uh, you know huge chunks of medicine can be uh, handled just the way we're handling this conversation right now. We even even can see each other. We can, yeah. uh, you know, we could poke ourselves where the doctor asked us to poke ourselves type yeah. thing mm-hmm. and say, yeah, that's kind of where it hurts at the moment. So yeah, there's a huge amount that can be done virtually. So we need to take advantage of both the relationship side and the modern technology that makes access to primary care physicians paramount. But yes, we need a way to deal with the big stuff. Well, That's the 20%. That's the, the additional 20% of medical needs. Okay, first of all, if your quarterback towards those other 20% is a doctor who's already outside of the insurance system, who, who you value because you're paying him directly, hence the term direct primary care. Okay, and he's steering you to specialists or to places like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, uh, or to, uh, if you need an MRI, he's sending you to places like Green Imaging and other groups that are springing up. I mean, did you know that an MRI, uh, here in Austin, let's just use this as a typical example, if I go to Green Imaging, I think it'll cost me $325 for an MRI. If I go to our local hospital, it'll cost me $2,500 to $3,500. That's 10 times more. So there's a system emerging. So when you are engaged with a family doctor who understands this system and he's directing you towards that, that's already dramatically cutting your costs. But there are some times you're going to end up needing, absolutely needing the expensive care, grateful for it, probably shouldn't cost what it does cost, but you're going to need a way to take care of those bills. And something like our our medical cost sharing approach is one free market approach, which is great gaining ground. Uh, really quite rapidly because people are seeing, yes, we need access to healthcare, but who said the only way you could get that is through insurance? Right. So if you had a very serious illness under your free market model, a catastrophic kind of illness or one that needed radical attention and a lot of medical intervention, you could keep the cost down under your system for something, a case like that? Okay, let let me try and answer that question honestly. If if the patient will follow our advice, then we can probably keep their costs down dramatically because just by proactively working, Mm. 
you can help a person choose whether they have that cardiac stent put in in place A or in place B. In place A, it might cost $75,000. In place B, with a lower complication rate, it might cost $25,000. So, you know, you begin to engage people. But let's assume that they just say, no, but I really want to go here. You know, the Mayo Clinic is wonderful, which it is. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's near for me. It's convenient. And uh, that, that's where I need to go. Uh, then, you know, we found we can still keep the overall cost for our community right down, even though we allow our members to make their own ultimate choices of what they do. So they could work so, yes. within your community, but if needs be, and there was exceptions or that was their desire, they could go to the Mayo Clinic or one of the traditional healthcare providers. Sure. I mean, take, a, take an accidental situation. You're involved in a car wreck. You have no choice of where you end up going. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to take care of them. And we take care of those big bills all the time, as do the Christian healthcare sharing ministries. So that, that's what I'm saying. There are alternate approaches and there are actually insurance approaches, which only take care of the catastrophic. But the government uh, doesn't allow these to fulfill the full definition under the Affordable Care Act. If people wanted to make a choice that I'm going to take care of all the small stuff, uh, but let me get something that only handles, let's call it 20,000 and up. You can't do that without being penalized. Uh, you know, why should the government interfere in those things if people are willing to take personal responsibility? Uh, and that's really where the free market naturally moves people is those who are willing to take responsible decisions begin to make choices as to what they feel is the best approach for them. For some people, that's going to be an insurance approach. Nothing wrong with people making that choice if they're free to make that choice. Yeah. Similarly, they should be free to choose the medical cost sharing approach if that's what they prefer. Okay, well, you mentioned one uh, figure earlier, 75 per individual and family more, obviously, as a group. And then what about for that covers, you know, primary care, but what for those bigger events, they have to go in for blood pressure or heart treatment, or well, you can imagine all kinds of scenarios, what would the overall cost be? Per person well, uh, again it depends how engaged people have got when, when it could go up, in involved, other words it could go up or down it sounds to me yeah yeah i mean there, there, there's a complete spectrum because it's cost here, sharing yes but it, it, if you have an environment say you're, you're you're the ceo of a large company like harris rosen down in uh orlando with uh his uh rosen hotels and resorts maybe seven or eight thousand employees okay and you've been educating them for years you've also been making sure they all have a really strong primary care physician looking after them, who's helping navigate them into the expensive parts of the system. So now in that context where the family doctor has time, let's say that someone uh, has a cardiac event. Uh, okay, so maybe they you know, have a situation, let, let's say, of, uh, where their heart goes sort of haywire and is beating way too fast. Uh, so they're sent to a specialist. Well, you can send them to a specialist who understands cash pay, who understands there's going to be no paperwork here. The patient will happily pay in advance. Okay, when you cut out the paperwork, you can cut most doctor's costs in half. So, you know, there might be a cardiologist who just says, sure, for cash pay patients, I just charge them half of what I charge others because I've already got the money up front. Okay, so already you've cut it. Now he may need to do a stint. He may need to put something up through your, your we know that's or expensive. Bank. Yeah, and, and that's expensive. So they belong to a community or they have insurance or whatever it is they've chosen to have. Uh, but it may be that if they're in a cardiac facility that is owned by the physicians, they don't have to charge all of these outrageous prices uh, that hospitals might charge, a facility charge, uh, which it could, could be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for letting the patient use their facility. Whereas if you go to something like the surgery center of Oklahoma uh, and have your knee replaced, uh, there, there isn't a facility charge. It's baked into the price which, like I said, the overall price is about one third uh, of what people pay for the same surgery in other hospitals in that city. So you're, you're going to be anywhere on this spectrum based on how actively engaged patients become in their own care. And that's why the whole concept of direct or free market, where we realize that our choices make a difference. You pay a lot more for a Rolls Royce than you do for a Ford. 
Okay, but that is your choice. Uh, and that's, that's what will drive prices down and quality up because a Ford nowadays is probably almost as reliable as a Rolls Royce, maybe more so. So, you know, where the free market is allowed to work, it brings quality up and price down. So do the patients bear the burden of the overall cost? Is it spread out on a, a proportional basis to, to each member of that cooperative? Yeah, I mean, in, in the systems I'm describing, uh, these things are shared among the community. Yep. And, you know, what we do is uh, organizing and running the community is make sure that all of the funds are allocated. They're very clear guidelines. You know, typically a person will choose, hey, look, I'm going to take care of the first $1,500 of any given need, but I need the community's help uh, on anything beyond that. And so that that's how we engage with them. Sure, you, you have to run a community like this on very sound economic principles, but the answer is it works extremely well. What kind of support are you getting from the medical community overall? Uh, are they buying into this or are there skeptics? You know, of course, there's both. Uh, the Free Market Medical Association Conference you alluded to at the beginning of our time together uh, indicates that there are huge numbers, not, you know, thousands of doctors and others now who are very, very seriously looking at the power of the free market. Uh, but is there also skepticism? Of course, 100%. Uh, and typically, not exclusively, but typically, the more people are entrenched in the system, the more skeptical they're likely to be. So, you know, the typical person, an administrator in a hospital, they have no real understanding of how corrupt the system they're involved in. So there's corruption in the system. You have said that repeatedly, which is really interesting to hear from somebody of your caliber. Well, I, I don't know what other language to use. I mean, I, in my book, I describe various uh, of my own personal experiences as well as other people's experience. Uh, and I think we need to own up. Uh, if we don't own up to the problem, how are we ever going to solve it? Are you hopeful more people, more uh, American consumers and more doctors will move into the free market way of doing things? Do you think it's good? Is it a bandwagging effect given the soaring costs of healthcare in America? I'm hopeful. Uh, I, I'm an optimist at heart. Uh, even something as large and as needy as the American healthcare system, I believe can be transformed. But I don't believe that that transformation comes from the top. Okay, I think it people. comes from the grassroots. Okay. Uh, if we're looking to Washington to solve our problems, I think we're looking to the wrong place. Well, we're going to finish off on a, an optimistic note. You're celebrating 50 years of marriage. And you told me just before we went on the air that you're going to be going to a, a picturesque part of the world to, to celebrate Kenmare, my neck of the woods, although I'm not from Kenmare, I'm from Ireland. So I wish you and your, and your wife, uh, congratulate you and your family. And uh, Dr. Dale, thank you for being on my show. It's a privilege. And I'm really looking forward to going to your home country. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.